On the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, we talk about all the aspects of healing. The beautiful parts and the painful parts, too. We acknowledge that healing is not linear. And there are many ups and downs in every person's story. And in fact, we celebrate the messy parts just as much as the pretty parts. This is Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. I'm your host, Courtney Brooke. I am so excited to jump into the interview today with Taylor Pinkston, a licensed social worker and the creator of The Heart Advocate. But before we get started, I wanted to give you guys a couple of quick life updates and announcements. So guys, I have been on the craziest part of my healing journey so far. I recently started working with a mentor. Her name is Michelle Bouchard, if you know her. She's incredible. She's an acupuncturist who teaches at the Mangata in Latrobe, and her and I connected a little over a month or so ago, and I went to her with a feeling of missing something. I felt like I had this vision in my mind of this woman that I wanted to be who was super earthy and made her own tinctures and oils and spent hours in her garden and I just couldn't figure out the steps that I needed to take to become this person. So I went to her with this idea that I was missing something and I needed to figure out what action I needed to take to become this woman. And she immediately told me, Courtney, you're not missing anything. Everything that you need is right inside of you. And I don't think you need to take any action to become that woman. Instead, I think you need to think about what you need to let go of in order to become that woman. And that was something that I needed to hear so desperately Over the course of my life, I have adapted and become a very sort of type A person. I learned to embody a lot of masculine energy in order to be productive and what I thought was gain value. So I adapted a very linear way of thinking and understanding things and I realized after that conversation that I had maybe not been fully immersed in my femininity. So she asked me to read the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. It's an incredible book written by a Yangishan psychologist. And I came to realize that the idea of femininity that I had was based off of the patriarchal religious household that I had been raised in. And that femininity doesn't mean that you're soft or passive. Instead, it can be a beautifully fierce and nurturing and loving energy. So I've been on this journey around figuring out what I needed to let go of in order to embrace more of this femininity and become this vision of this woman that I have in my mind and I know I will be. And it led me down this path of becoming sober curious. So anybody who knows me knows that I am a huge proponent of medical marijuana. I think that it's so useful and helpful. It helped me immensely in my journey. I originally got my medical card for PTSD Um, I even wrote a paper about it for school in 2013 about how medical marijuana can be used for mental health treatment. Big firm believer that it is a useful tool. But at some point, I started to realize that I was using it as a crutch and I wasn't injured anymore. So it was like I was still carrying this crutch around and didn't really have a purpose for it and I started to become more mindful of why am I even doing this I've put a lot of work in with my nervous system regulation 
I meditate almost every day. I do a lot of breath work. I exercise and I go to therapy. I do all of these things. And I began to realize that that was one of the things that I really needed to let go of. And alcohol and I have always had a bit of a weird relationship. I had a grandfather who unfortunately drank himself to death. And I've definitely leaned on it too much at certain points in my journey. A few years ago, I worked with a therapist to help bring myself out of a place of alcohol abuse and back into just alcohol use routinely, just social settings. I didn't overdo it. I set some boundaries around it. Never drank more than a few drinks at a time. But after I decided to quit using medical marijuana, I would have maybe just a couple of drinks and I noticed that my body really reacted poorly. It was as if my body just started rejecting it altogether. I started to feel really disoriented when I would have a drink. And I finally understood when certain people would say, like, I don't like the feeling of being drunk or high. And it was weird, (laughs) really, really weird because... I've been drinking and smoking for a long time. And it's really hard to believe that I am at this point where I'm ready to put the crutch away. I've healed. I am saying sober curious because I have no hard and fast rule to say that I'll never do it ever again. But I can say that at this point in my journey, I have come to a place where I'm ready to let it go. So I don't know about you, but I always find it inspiring to hear other people and where they're at in their journey. So maybe you hear a part of yourself in that. Maybe you don't. I have no judgment at all if you're in a place where you still need that crutch and you still need that help. Who knows? Shit could hit the fan for me (laughs) and I could need it again. But for right now, I am about three weeks sober and it feels really good. I have been experimenting with different non-alcoholic beverages. So I've tried Recess and Desois. I really like the Golden Hour by Desois. And it's been interesting to go to different restaurants and I'm suddenly noticing they have zero-proof options. So it helps me to not feel left out. Nobody even realizes or notices when you do a order a drink that's non-alcoholic. And it's been a really interesting part of my journey. So paleocidity is my theme for right now. Paleocidity simply means seeing things clearly. And that's where I'm at. I am ready to see things clearly. And this next part of my journey, this new chapter that I'm opening requires me to be very clear and very focused. So I also wanted to share with you guys a couple of announcements as far as upcoming events. So this upcoming Saturday, April the 22nd at 10 a.m., I will be leading a guided meditation for the Earth Day event at Hilton Farm 2 in Smith's NPI. I will be guiding everybody through a loving-kindness meditation. We'll start with some grounding, and I've got some gentle movement planned. And then we will shift gears and focus on healing ourselves through the Earth. And then also taking those same healing vibes and sending them back to the Earth. That same Saturday, the 22nd, at 7 p.m., I will be leading the Curio Coven at Ms. Jones Curio in Greensburg. So technically the event sold out, but we just added a couple of last-minute tickets. So if you're a last-minute person, go ahead and quickly snag those before they're gone. Then next week on Thursday, April the 27th at 6.30 Exhale will be back at its home base at the space in Greensburg. Exhale is a community support group, and we always begin with 60 to 90 minutes of open discussion. 
and it's going to be followed by 30 minutes of grounding strategies. This will be our first time back in the yard, weather permitting, so we'd love to have you stop by. The following Sunday, April the 30th at 10 a.m., I will be leading a human design workshop at the space. If you don't know anything about human design, human design is a blend of astrology, the Kabbalah, the chakra system, the I Ching, all these ancient modalities blended into one. And I think of it as the rule book of how we actually navigate through the world. So yes, this is Spirituality 101. I'm just rebranding a little bit. So it is the Human Design Workshop. If you find it under the Facebook events, we're going to be learning all about the different energy types, strategy and authority for decision making, and reviewing the different roles as well. So we'd love to have you stop by for that. Make sure you grab your ticket today. All right, so now that we've made it through some life updates and announcements, let's prepare ourselves for today's nonlinear healing story. So today we're going to be hearing from Taylor Pinkston. Taylor is a licensed social worker and the creator of The Heart Advocate. This is a group that is dedicated to helping people choose self-love as a coping skill. Taylor is an incredible human with a huge heart for herself and others. And she's an inspiring leader in her field. So without further ado, I'm excited to share with you all Taylor Pinkson's story of nonlinear healing. Welcome, Taylor, to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast. Thank you so much, Courtney, for having me. Well, I am so excited to jump into your story and to share your journey of healing with my listeners. So why don't you take a moment to set the stage for us? Tell us a little bit about when you were born, where you were born, about your family. Well, I am a Pittsburgh born and raised um, kind of woman. Um, Both of my parents were born and raised in Pittsburgh. Um, actually both of them grew up in Northview Heights. My mom lived on the hill for a little bit. Um, and they raised me and my two sisters, younger sister and an adopted older sister, um, in Pineview, uh, uh, Perrysville area, um, on the north side of Pittsburgh. Um, and yeah, I grew up in a two-parent household. With, you know, a lot of dogs in and out of my house and <laughs> um, a lot of people. I, I, my cousins on my mom's side lived with us throughout the years of my adolescence. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a north side of Pittsburgh girl, still living on the north side, actually, because I love it. It sounds like you have a pretty big family. I mean, I guess it sounds like I have a big family. I mean, I don't know if I look at it like that. Um, I've definitely heard bigger. My dad is one of 10 and my mom is one of seven, um, which I think for their generation, that feels um, very much the norm. But for my generation, us millennials are like, what? No. Um, (laughs) Never. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, but I have one daughter myself now, and I love that number. I love the number one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, I do. I have a lot of cousins, a lot of cousins, a lot of uncles and aunts. Um, but yeah, just two sisters. And it sounds like you guys were pretty closely knit. Like you guys spent a lot of time together, um, with your aunts and uncles and cousins. Well, um, not really. Um, family reunions, I saw most of my family the most, but outside of that, it was my mom's side. I think my mom's sisters, um, as they got older, they became closer and started having kids. So we would do like sleepovers and stuff with them. And then my cousins who lived with us for periods of time, we were close growing up. Um, but outside of that, like that group there, um, family reunions were pretty much when we saw each other. Um, which were always fun. Some of my best memories were um, at family reunions and times just gathering with 
with everybody. But yeah, we it was it was a lot of people um, <laughs> in those moments. Uh, and to this day, me and my younger sister, we're really close, but I actually don't have um, much of a relationship or connection with my older sister. Gotcha. Okay. I, I mentioned because I, I grew up with a lot of my cousins around and, you know, they eventually became like some of my best friends and they, they still are. Mm, so mm-hmm. the um, big family, it sounds like you still kind of were doing your own thing and enjoying yeah. the time that you guys spent together, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Even to this day, it's so hard. We, we are always talking about getting the cousins together and trying to do something and, all of our work life schedules and it's just, it's hard, but um, I definitely miss my cousins who are, a lot of them are still in the city of Pittsburgh, but I haven't, I don't really see as often as I would like to. Gotcha. So it sounds like you grew up with loving, supportive parents um, in a household that, doesn't really, I'm not hearing too much as far as like dysfunction or ACEs or anything like that. I'm blessed to um, say that growing up traumatic life events and adverse events, so to speak, um, I didn't witness personally, but because my mom adopted my older sister and because, you know, in crises, we had to foster uh, my sibling, uh, my cousins and things like that. Um, I heard a lot of stories, I'll say that. And um, it really opened my eyes to, you know, things that individuals could, it could experience um, due to, you know, various things that their parents had went through and things that they were still battling with. Drugs, alcohol um, was a big one. Um, and that substance abuse really is prominent in my family, both sides, mom and dad. And so my parents raised us in a very Christian household um, and really tried to embed a lot of those values in us, in my cousins, and ultimately just trying to shift that narrative that they grew up in, which was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug addiction and, and things like that. And and so my parents um, valued ed- education, they valued religion um, and family and quality time with family. So they were always, you know, I just, re- I remember growing up, like never, there was always one of my cousins in our house, like at some point, I don't remember a lot of times where it was just me, my sister, or me and both of my sisters. Um, so maybe that's where the social worker in me came from. Um, being that advocate for people who have experienced adverse and traumatic things um, and just being that support person that can can understand through empathy you know Um, yeah well and it sounds to me like as much as it may not have been occurring to you it was certainly a maybe like intergenerational theme like in in generations before yours and it sounds in, in some way, shape or form, like your parents were kind of like breaking some of those generational cycles. And- yes, they were. They were. And of course, at the time, you don't real, <laughs> you're not, you're just living. So it, was, it felt like a norm to have, you know, all my cousins around all the time um, for, for whatever the reason was, it just was our norm. But my mom was a social worker, you know, like, and is, a, I mean, she's a, she's a counselor now. She does art therapy now. She's very much um, an advocate and it rubbed off on me. I would say 100%. I admire and admired my mom growing up so much. She just cared so much about people and helping people. And although she would, you know, give, she also very much took care of herself too. So I really got to witness her self-care and her ability to set boundaries and, and all of those things, um, which helped shape me to be, I would say the social worker that I am. Um, 
it just helped me. It shaped me to be the social worker that I am watching her advocate for herself, but also advocating for other people. Uh, but yeah, they, they absolutely um, broke generational curses uh, that, you know, were embedded in my family. And I can very much relate to that in, in a sense. You know, I, I grew up in a household where um, there, there unfortunately was a lot of dysfunction. Um, my parents tried to kind of break some of that and got caught up later. Like my, my early childhood was pretty stable and we were a very strict Christian household. But, mm-hmm. you know, towards adolescent is when they went back to using um, and things like that. But I think it's so interesting how your mother really became this inspiration for you and, mm-hmm. and being able to see her like setting these boundaries, advocating for herself, you know, really showing up for people and, and on in an authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something that only, you know, when, when I talk about it, like in situations like this, it, it really just um, hits it hits uh, in, in all the great ways and into why I am so much the way that I am um, when it comes to my own personal boundaries and pr- professionally as well, but also my love for helping individuals love themselves and value their mental health and well-being. Um, it, it, yeah, it started very young for me um, and it continues to this day. And what a wonderful example you had of that in your life at such a young age. And even though like maybe as children, you know, it's not like we're like, oh, I want to be like my mom, right? We don't maybe, maybe there's a part of us. Yes, that does. But then, you know, we don't realize the impact of that until we're a little bit older and we go, wow, like I see how this really shaped me into the person I am today. Yeah, I, (laughs) I didn't initially go to college for social work or counseling or anything like that. I went to college to, you know, be a journalist. Writing is also a passion of mine. Um, But I took a couple extracurricular social work courses just, you know, to fill my semester up uh, to graduate. And I fell in love with the classes and decided to get my master's in it. Um, So you're absolutely right. I was, I wanted to sing, I wanted to write. Um, and it wasn't until very, you know, late in my college, you know, career or time in college where, you know, social work became the love that I, that I wanted to spend my time investing in. Yeah. I I feel like for many of us, it's like, we don't choose social work. Social work kind of chooses us. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. For, for many reasons, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's really cool that you shifted in that way. Um, so what was that experience like for you? What were your, you know, maybe high school and college years like? I, <laughs> high school was, uh, I guess, the foundation of me uh, understanding that I was a people pleaser. and. <laughs> um, relationships and connecting with people is something that's a strength of mine. But with that strength came a lot of lacking those boundaries that I've been talking about and um, realizing that I was allowing disrespect in relationship from people just to have relationship with people. And, you know, although I started to set boundaries in, in high school and things like that, college is where I feel like I truly began to see myself. And that's how I got into self-love. But I went to Kappa, uh, the Creative and Performing Arts High School here in the city of Pittsburgh. When they first moved downtown, I was the freshman class um, uh, who, who, were, who was at the downtown location. And I love to sing. So choir um, was a huge part of my life, but I was also working in childcare under my mom um, at our church, Allegheny Center Alliance. Um, so I would leave high school and, you know, go work after school programs and summer day camps and stuff like that. Um, again, with the social work. 
before I even realized it, but I, I loved it. I love to perform. I love to sing in choirs and in groups. I was in a gospel group for some time when I was in high school. Um, but even out, outside of all of the performing and the, the you know, working in child cares and summer camps and things like that, I just remember my main focus was like finding romance and, and falling in love and that being like the most important important thing on my mind, like finding a partner, you know, like I said, my parents, I grew up in a two-parent household. My parents were married. And it was, I just remember it being something that was almost like taboo. Like, oh, your dad is in your house with you? Yeah, my parents are married. Like it, it I just remember teachers and and you know, other, just any adults, especially white individuals, being so shocked that my parents were black and married um, and they were together for 15 years. They're divorced now, but they, you know, while I was growing up, yeah, my dad was there and active and loving and in our lives and supportive and all those things. So I, I think that's very interesting. And it really, you know, just goes to show, you know, the amount of maybe bias or stigma that was present during that time where, you know, you explain to somebody, yeah, my, my, my parents are together. Like, they, they live together. We live in the same house. Yes. And, you know, yes. as yes. a white adolescent, if I were to say that to somebody, I don't think anybody would have given that two thoughts, right? Maybe. It would have just been like, oh yeah, like your parents are together. Uh, yeah. That's how most people are. But in that moment and time, you know, that was maybe something that people just, they had this assumption, right? What it meant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just remember constantly, like, almost feeling like I had to prove <laughs> that my parents were married and together. Um, and the looks that I would get when my dad would show up for like parent teacher conferences and, you know, things like that. Like, it's just little, it was just interesting looking back on it, like that, 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 um, that reflection of it in, in perception. I'm curious about another thing that you had just mentioned about being a performer and enjoying the performing arts. Mm -hmm. So I was on Instagram a couple of weeks ago and I saw a meme pop up and there was like a child, you know, performing in, in front of a group. And it was like, if you were this kid always putting on a show when you were young, you have a generalized anxiety disorder now. <laughs> and, um, Ooh. I, I can relate to that in a sense, because, you know, I'm a, I'm an anxious individual. I have been for my whole life. I do have a generalized anxiety disorder mm -hmm. and I was very much a performer as well. Um, I didn't go to Kappa or anything like that, but, um, I was very involved in church in the choir, um, mm -hmm. did some solo stuff. Mm -hmm. And was always very hyper aware to the point where, you know, I would be almost like meticulous in my performance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, like, if you can relate to that in any way. I never thought of it, um, but I definitely um, ha have generalized anxiety disorder, uh, was diagnosed officially in 2015 while I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, but I look back and I see symptoms of GAD, like in elementary school, for sure, for sure. Um, never put those two and two together. I remember being a perfectionist about my grades and definitely on stage. And if I messed up or did any, hit a wrong note or forgot the words, I would beat myself up so bad about those things. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure that, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is a connection that, you know, I, I'm just now processing. Um, but yeah, I do. I was definitely the type of performer that was a perfectionist um, and not really sure of where that comes from, because I know my mom, uh, my mom is the singer. My dad is, a, he's more of the sports guy. My, my mom grew up with like the performing arts people. She was the dancer. She ballerina like starting dance groups and she's a she's the singer um and the artist and on all of those things um but I don't remember her putting pressure on me like I I don't ever remember her like making me sing if I didn't want to or like critiquing me heavily you know 
I don't I don't remember that. So I don't know necessarily where that um, performance pressure and anxiety came from, but it kind of I I I look at it the same way I look at my public speaking um, anxiety that I get when I speak in front of people. Uh, I get very very nervous. I think it's so interesting because you know having anxiety. I think just like anything else, there are shadows. And there are light, right? Mm. Like, I think that in some way, shape or form, at least in my experience, my anxiety has served me in certain situations where, you know, I am paying very close attention. I'm, I'm hyper aware of certain things and I catch things and remember things differently because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways it's given me an edge different times throughout my life, mm-hmm. Um not to say that it hasn't also been a pain in my ass, <laughs> um, because anxiety, like it's, it's harmed me in other ways. Um, I'll share with you that. So I, I performed as a child a lot. Um, I, I toured with like a little group from my church, went to different, um, churches, like all throughout like the tri-state area and stuff like that. But then as an adult, once I got to college, you know, I needed to do some extracurriculars. And I was like, okay, like I'll just pick up like a piano class. Cause I was a trained pianist as a child. I figured it would be an easy a, right. So not realizing when I signed up for the class that I was going to have to perform, that was like the final. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like 20 <laughs> years old at the time. And, you know, I go to this rehearse or the performance, you know, the, the, um, on stage, you know, in front of my family. And at the time he was my boyfriend, he's now my husband. Um, and I'm, I'm performing and I hit a wrong note in front Mm. of everybody. And my anxiety was so debilitating at that point in my life that I literally stood up and ran off stage Mm. at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about debilitating anxiety, like yeah. that is a great example of what debilitating anxiety looked like in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that amount of anxiety is obviously not beneficial whatsoever, yeah. but a little bit of anxiety that, you know, kept me um, on edge, making sure that I studied the way I needed to or, or performed the way I needed to, like that part of it maybe did have some benefits. I don't yeah. know. What do you mm-hmm. think? Well, I, I think I think we all have pieces of us that make us who we are. Like every piece matters. So um, I think it's beneficial for each of us and helpful to focus on the helpful um, <laughs> and pay attention to when things are debilitating, like you're saying, or it's getting in the way of you living your life or of you um, expressing yourself and, and existing. Um, But my anxiety is a part of me, you know, like you're, like you're describing. And so I'm sure that it has played a role in um, production, uh, proficiency, things like that. Uh, What I don't, uh, what I don't enjoy is the perfectionism that comes with it, that pressure and judgment and critique that can spiral into, you know, not choosing to live or exist or holding yourself back or um, holding yourself hostage into like boxes or standards of what you should be. That is what I found in my life that my anxiety is capable of. It just keeps me almost hiding or hidden, isolated, um, just not that fear keeping me from moving forward. Um, so I like to acknowledge all the parts of me and not shame any parts, even the parts that are hard to sit with. Um, but anxiety is definitely something that I have to use coping skills for all the time. Um, and pull out my tool belt of coping skills and lean in uh, in certain situations trigger certain symptoms of anxiety. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I handle that accordingly. But yeah, I mean, sure, there are helpful parts, but the harmful parts are the ones that um, I try to to do something about 
with my coping skills. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the thing about having a generalized anxiety disorder is knowing and recognizing that, you know, the symptoms are going to wax and wane. Right. Mm -hmm. And in those moments where they are worsening, like you, you have to lean back into your coping skills and strategies. This isn't like a one and done. It's like, oh, well, I I meditated this week. So now I'm not going to be anxious, right? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it, it still amazes me every day. Like if I do not ground myself in the morning, every morning, how mm. quickly I can be derailed. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, because anxiety for me is worrying, worrying about the inevitable worrying about the future, worrying about what ifs, you know, and your that grounding is so important to that because what I can control is happening right now. That's all I can control. I don't know what will happen. And there are inevitable things that will absolutely happen, but they're not happening right now. And so (laughs) that's how I talk to myself a lot. You know, just like, is it happening right now, Taylor? Because if it's not happening right now, worrying about it isn't going to change that it's not happening right now. And, And yeah, it may happen, but you can't control that can't control when that will be. So I just try to spend a lot of time focusing on what I can control. And that's what I help other individuals do as well, because anxiety, yeah, yeah. Um, Relationship anxiety is probably (laughs) the type of anxiety that I I struggle with the most. Um, Worrying or wondering if I will have someone to spend the rest of my life with if there, if, if that's for me, because it is something that I want. Um, but it's hard to see it sometimes. And, you know, the perfectionist wants control <laughs> and, um, we don't have control over, over the ins and outs of, of everything in life. So yeah, that, that's, that's the, the part, uh, my high school college experience was just me holding on to people because of the anxiety of, and my fears of abandonment. Um, all of it connects and goes hand in hand, but yeah, I just grasped onto anyone I could just to have people for fear of being alone. And, and you said you wanted romance more than anything. There was oh. like this part of you that just wanted it and was maybe willing to make some sacrifices or like willing to accept certain things just to have that. Yes, absolutely. Settled for less all the time. Ignored my instincts all the time. Didn't listen to my wisdom most often. I remember a lot of self-sacrifice and I remember a lot of um, neglecting myself you know, even the examples, you know, even in the 2020s are evident. And it's something that I still have to check in with myself about, you know, um, loneliness and connection with fear, fearing of abandonment or rejection or all of those things um, have played a major role in who I chose to be in relationship with. And so now I'm journeying in singleness and truly in, like intentionally being single. And what does that mean? And intentionally dating. And what does that mean? Uh, and it means not settling, at least for, for me, that's what it means. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember the, the, the diary entries and the journal entries about what my partner would be and who they would look or what they would look like and how they would make me feel. And then in actual relationships, settling for way less than that. Um, and so I, I didn't recognize my abandonment issues um, until after college. Uh, once I found that I was pregnant with my daughter, I, I got into therapy hesitantly and a lot was revealed to me about my self-sacrifice and, and neglect, neglecting myself um, and how that connects to my fear of abandonment, which comes from um, my older sister, 
and a lot of the the things that happened with her as um like towards the end of her time living with us in our in in the house um and why we have not talked in almost what 15 years maybe more and now you're kind of looking at that experience and seeing how it connects and how it kind of shaped experiences after that. Yeah. I mean, she's my earliest memory. Like when I think of my earliest memory in childhood, I remember the day my older sister came to live with us. And I remember like her suitcase being on the floor and she was like unpacking her suitcase. It's like flashes of memory, but that's what I like. That's the earliest thing in my life that I can remember. And I just remember loving her and we were, you know, close all the way up until about high school. And then once I started dating, things just changed in our relationship. And I know for me, even in my friendships in college, I was so relationship starved that I would even neglect friendships and familyships for that person. So I would, I'm, I was the type to stop hanging out with all my friends and family. And now I only hang out with the person I'm in relationship with. And that's something that I really had to work through um, in my life and had to shift, you know, after college, after really realizing how that impacted the connections that I had with people that I truly love and care about. And I've grown so much in that space. Um, but then on, on her end, there was a lot of jealousy. So um, I'm sure my lack of spending time with her because I was spending so much time with my boyfriend played a major role in that. Um, but there was like a lot of, you know, her lying and stealing and spreading rumors about me that weren't true. And, and just a, like a lot of um, things that an enemy would do for somebody who was so close to me um, since I was, what, three years old? She was five or six years old um, when, when she was adopted. So I didn't realize that that abandonment, you know, from, cause she, she had, when I was in high school, close to graduating, she moved out of our house um, and ended up like moving out of state. And we really haven't seen her since then. You know, that was like 2005, 2006. Um, I think she's come back to visit maybe once or twice at the most um, in that time. But uh, I didn't connect that to how I was operating in relationships after high school until after college. <laughs> wow. It, it took me a while to really put that all together. Like, you know, you're, you're holding on to people just to have people because you're afraid of losing people because you lost a very significant relationship um, that you were trying to avoid that it didn't bother you. Like I spent a lot of years acting like losing her didn't bother me. Absolutely bothered me. And it came out in how I acted in relationships. People became disposable for, for, for lack of better words. Um, I, I remember, you know, if somebody hurt me, I cut you off immediately. Didn't even try, but not in romantic relationships. In romantic relationships, it was just the opposite. You know, you could hurt me over and over and over again, and I would still choose you. It was interesting. It, it, yeah. And so you made that connection once you started to go to therapy, mm -hmm. once you found out that you were pregnant, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Graduated with my master's pregnant. Um, and the relationship that I was in, it just was not a healthy relationship. Neither one of us were in a healthy mind state. Um, a lot of, you know, I wasn't, I didn't trust him. He didn't trust me. Very much, I feel like both of us were just settling, you know, and then now I'm pregnant. So, you know, we just, we just were sticking it out. You know, I think there was a lot of love there, but a lot of the other things that you need to have a healthy relationship, like respect and support and loyalty, those things were a little, they were shaky. They were rocky. 
And so the foundation of our relationship was very much toxic, a lot of arguments, um, a lot of, yeah, just like, yeah, it just was not, was not a good space, but we chose to be together um, when we shouldn't have been at all. Um, we just didn't fit, you know, good person. I'm a good person. You're a good person, but that doesn't mean we, we fit together. Um, and like I said, I just don't, at that time, um, he was, he's about six years older than me, but even at that time, we just weren't mentally ready to be in a relationship. I was still struggling with, you know, abandonment issues and, and, you know, my fears of loneliness, and, you know, he had his own mental health and battles and things that he was working through. So, yeah, when when two un, emotionally unhealthy people try to be in a relationship together, that is, it can be extremely problematic. And it was, I feel like it, it ultimately was um, a lot of emotional, verbal abuse, a lot of gaslighting and me constantly feeling like I had to chase him in order to keep him. And I did, I tried so hard to keep him for so long. Um, and then over time, we just, we ended. Um, and I made the, the choice to, to no longer tolerate disrespect um, and to just choose something that I'm most scared of, which is loneliness. So I've been, you know, choosing that, taking myself out on dates, spending time with my friends, family, um, and really uh, nourishing my soul in a way that college Taylor really needed, you know, and, and high school Taylor really needed. And so as scary as it is at times and as hard as it, hard as it is for me to sit with, at the end of the day, I know that this time is intentional and needed. Um, and that who I am becoming will be someone who is emotionally ready for a relationship because I will have those boundaries in place, those non-negotiables in place. I will, you know, advocate for myself like I advocate for others in relationships. And, and that's why I believe in intentionally dating, not just casually dating, because then it's, then it's different. It's a different energy. Anything with intention is very different, mm-hmm. right? If if we don't have intention and we walk into a situation, then, you know, we don't have the tools really that we need. Because yeah. if I have an intention, then I know what tools I need to, to accomplish whatever my intention is. Whereas mm-hmm. if I'm just walking into a situation, I'm like, I just want to be loved, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. going to look a lot different than like, I want something meaningful. I want mutual respect. I want, you know, then you know what you're looking for. Yeah. That relationship (laughs) taught me everything that I don't want in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And even everything that I do want, because sometimes you don't know what you want. It's presented to you. You know, I do know what I don't want. And I just have to stay true to myself and not settle for less. And I believe that I'm fully capable of doing that. And I think sometimes we need that contrast. So as painful and as um, heartbreaking as that might've been to be in a relationship with somebody that maybe you really care about, but you know, Mm -hmm. there's just not those other aspects that you need to have Mm -hmm. a happy and a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, as painful as that experience may have been, it sounds like it also did serve you in a sense. Like it it taught you that like, these are the things that I don't, want in a relationship and having that contrast then that'll Mm -hmm. be what empowers you to to get what you need out of a relationship yeah I think because of that that just um that desire to truly be in a relationship I always tell people that most people go to college for the education. I really think I went to college to find a husband. Like in my mind, it was like, I'm supposed to be married by 26, pregnant by 30, you know, like that was more thought through than actually what I wanted to do for a career. So for me, it was very much um, the goal. And because of that, 
I needed the lesson. Like I truly would do it all again. Of course, I got a beautiful little girl out of the entire situation. So I would definitely do it again for that. But for the lessons as well, I learned so much about myself in this last relationship. And it really opened a lot of my anxieties as well. Like, I don't know if I would have explored it in the way that I did in therapy if I wasn't in that relationship or that type of relationship, like you said, with somebody that I truly love and care about to this day, but you're not my person because my person wouldn't talk to me that way or that person, my person wouldn't disrespect me in that way or disrespect themselves in that way. Um, So I would do it all again. I don't have any regrets. I would do it all again just to learn everything that I learned about myself and and that it's okay to be single. I think that it was what my inner child needed to know. You know mm-hmm. that marriage does not mean marriage is not the only happy ending. Like that <laughs> that's not it. Like that there's there's other types of love that I needed to lean into and prioritize over romantic, intimate love. I think that love is beautiful, but I, like I said, was neglecting other types of love just to have romance and that intimate, you know, partner relationship. And I think I needed to explore that because it gave me balance. And now, you know, I would make, I make time for my friends and my relationship. I make time for my family. I don't put all of my energy into one person or, or feel like, you know, that I'm nothing without that person. I think that was a big, the, a big thing, you know, high school and and college feeling like I needed someone to be happy. Yes. And of the different types of love, one Hmm. that I know that you now specialize in is self-love, Yeah. right? So you were diagnosed in 2015 Uh and then by 2017, you had sort of taken that journey home to yourself. It sounds like. That's right. Um, Also, thanks to that relationship, once I went to therapy and my therapist at the time helped me recognize that I wasn't writing, which is, again, like I said, a passion of mine, something I really enjoy. I wasn't writing during my pregnancy. I I didn't do the baby book and I didn't do all that stuff. I was was depressed. I was experiencing prenatal depression alongside of the generalized anxiety. And once that was presented to me and um, self-love was really buzzy at the time, it was just something that I knew I needed, but I didn't know what it meant. So I found the Path of Self-Love school online after searching what, you know, like what self-love is, found Christina Rilo. She's the founder of the Path of Self-Love and began my journey learning what self-love looks like and how to be a coach and coach others to use self-love and to know what it means and to prioritize it and to practice it and and all of those things. Uh, But my background is social work. So I've always, you know, dreamed of being a therapist and things like that. And, you know, in my self-love training, and it was just like, why isn't self-love talked about more in mental health? So that is why I call myself the bridge between those worlds. And, and I help individuals choose self-love as a coping skill, but it came from me not choosing self-love. You know, it, it started by me being transparent enough to say, you, your actions don't look like you love yourself. You can say you love yourself all you want, but when you think about your choices and relationships, when you think about the way you've handled Um, situations and how you speak to yourself, how you think about yourself. Is that really love? And, And I just had to be honest with myself and no, no, it's not loving to body and beauty shame yourself. It's not loving to feel like you're, you know, not qualified to do the things that you, you know, spent years studying and 
prioritizing and practicing to see yourself as less than, to not take care of yourself, to not listen to yourself, to hoard your thoughts, feelings, and emotions for fear of being too much or not being good enough. Like all of those things that I was doing was a a clear picture that I did not love myself. And so I had to do the work in me. And so from 2015 to about 2017, 2018 even, and up until this day has been an intentional self-love practice. I take it everywhere I go. I talk about it all the time, but I also practice it. And I think that's the difference in, in how I share the work that I do because I share my struggles with the people that I work with. I don't make it seem like I am all-knowing and all-powerful in self-love. I am a student. I'm learning what self-love looks like by practicing it, but I'm also sharing what I know with anybody I come into contact with because we all deserve it and need it. Self-love is a right, you know, and it's not something that we're all taught growing up in every nook and cranny because our parents weren't taught and their parents weren't taught and on and on and on and on. So I just, I, I know that, yes, we all deserve it, but we don't all have access to the information. So the more that I can share in different spaces, I, I, I'm just so honored. I'm so honored. Yes. And, and I think for so many of us, you know, the best teachers are those of us who are continuous students, Yeah. right? Like we're coming from this place of lived experience. I didn't just read this in a textbook, right? Mm-hmm. Like I live this every day. I understand mm-hmm. this struggle. I know what this means. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that is incredibly powerful when it comes to, you know, treating or intervening in those instances. So yeah. I think that's so important. Yeah. Um, And then I'd like for you to just tell our listeners, you know, you made a point like self-love isn't just like saying, Hey, I love myself. Like these are actions. These Mm -hmm. are things that I'm doing day in and day out to show Mm -hmm. myself love. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the tools? What are some of the things that you've utilized along your healing journey? So I, 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 I talked a lot about boundaries today. You know, really understanding that boundaries are an individual responsibility is something that I prioritize in my self-love practice and I absolutely share with others to do. Um, Boundaries is another one of those words that's real buzzy right now, but I think it is a powerful tool when you know what a boundary is, that you recognize that it's your responsibility, that you're clear and direct about it, and that you apply consequences when boundaries are violated. I think those those things are really hard to do. It requires a lot of confidence and assertiveness, but with practice, you can do it e- easier. It gets easier <laughs> um, to do. Uh, I also am a firm believer in that quality time with self and checking in. So whether that's a journal prompt or a thought record, which is something we use in cognitive behavioral therapy to help challenge uh, distorted or unhelpful thoughts about self, others in the world. Um, but it's kind of like a journal prompt as well. Just asking myself how I'm doing. How are you feeling? What's going on inside of you? Whether that's through meditation or just, you know, when I'm laying in bed in the morning, trying not to get up. Um, spending that time just in quiet thinking to myself, not on my phone not watching or listening to anything. And just that quality time means so much to my mental health and well-being. Self-care is huge for me as well. It's a huge part of self-love as well. And taking care of mind, body, and soul comes in all different shapes and sizes. There's so many self-care activities out there. But that's another thing to check in with that I, that I um, practice and teach others. Because how you take care of yourself changes across the lifetime because you're going to change. You're going to need different things. And so I check in myself, check in with myself in that way as well. Um, And that big one that I said earlier, focusing on what I can control. Oh my goodness. If you have anxiety, if you have a mental health, which we all do, 
focusing on what you can control in situations will relieve so much of the unrealistic expectations. It it takes so much pressure off of self. Um, it encourages, you know, mindfulness and thoughtfulness and, and slowing down. You know, we're so speedy. We're so microwave in this society. Um, so the more we can slow down and stop putting unrealistic expectations on ourselves and ground ourselves in the here and now, it just shifts so much, especially with disorders like depression or anxiety. Yes, absolutely. I I agree 100%. And so Taylor, if my listeners are interested in learning more about you, following you in your journey or working with you, how can they do that? Well, I am... I am a self-love therapist, so I provide workshops, presentations, but also individual self-love sessions. Uh, so if anyone is interested in diving deeper in their self-love journey, uh, there's absolutely space for that. Um, my website is theheartadvocate.com. All of that information is on there alongside some free you know, resources and journal prompts and journal entries and different things like that, blog posts and information. But I also have my self-love sessions and ways to book services with me there. I also have a free support group called Healing Over Everything on Facebook. We are a self-love mental health healing support space uh, that is available to anyone 18 years of age and older. We talk about all the things in that space and provide encouragement, support, but also challenge individuals to choose self-love as a coping skill for mental health and healing. I'm very much visible on the social medias, specifically Instagram is my fave, uh, Facebook and Twitter where I share what self-love looks like. I speak words of encouragement. I share my truth and my story and my journey um, and uh, help other others choose self-love. Uh, so if you want to connect with me, you can always slide into my DM. You can email me at theheartadvocate at gmail. Um, and I am the heart advocate on, on social media platforms. Wonderful, Taylor. Well, we appreciate you coming on and share, sharing your wisdom, sharing your advice with the listeners. Um, any last words of wisdom that you might leave for somebody who's along their healing journey? Any advice that you might leave them with? Transparency brought me healing. When I started to release myself from the, the, the bounds of shame, around, you know, various parts of me that were hard to sit with. When I started to be open with myself, doesn't mean you have to go on social media and publicly write your story and tell everybody your business. Um, but most of us struggle to just be honest with ourselves, to be honest with our loved ones, to be honest with the people that we consider soul family, you know? So if you can give yourself that, that honesty, that awareness of yourself and who you are and who you are not is truly the foundation of anything. It's definitely the foundation of self-love, but it's also the foundation of healing. And the more transparent I am with myself, I believe I am journeying through healing. All of these things are lifelong. There is no destination in healing, but it is a journey that you have to choose to navigate through and to, to choose coping skills along that journey that are helpful, things that are going to encourage, motivate, and empower you to, to heal, to self-love, to prioritize your mental health and well-being. So transparency, it's a coping skill. Absolutely. Where there is denial, we cannot have change, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, that very first step of being honest with myself about where I'm at. That's so mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We're so excited. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Wow, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed Taylor's interview. If you did, please make sure to share with others on social media, screenshot and tag us on social media, and leave a review on Apple or whatever platform you're listening from. That's how we grow and help others find these stories. Thanks again for tuning in this week to Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooks.